Make sure your seat backs are in their full upright positions. <laughs> and please stow all electronic devices for the duration of this supersonic flight. <laughs> No snacks. <laughs> but this flight's not nearly as long as it needs to be. I told Rach if I, if I had a solid two hours tonight, this would go very, very well. <laughs> We're visiting Jeremiah. Be there in your Bibles. Chapter 2, please. As we go through this, I think I'd say it'd be unkind of you and a little bit selfish if you sit on your wisdom <laughs> And you don't, you know, don't share what you've gained from your reading and study of this. I intend to make some deliberate pauses for you to get a word in, and, but that may not necessarily coincide with the best timing for you to make a comment. So uh, make some noise, make a frantic gesture, let's get a mic, let's hear from you, and we will all be better if we um, hear, hear your wisdom. Jeremiah. We'll be finding chapter 2 very quickly. Before we do that, let's do a short recap of what we've seen and what we've tried to, uh, a foundation we've tried to lay. <clears throat> what do you see, brothers? An almond. What is it? A blooming almond tree. You've seen well. <laughs> What does it mean? From Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah saw an almond tree. What does it mean? God is watching over his word word to perform it, to hasten, maybe even hasten to perform it. Two thoughts in that are that there's a certainty of it and there's proximity, which means it's at hand. The time is at hand. What do you see, my sisters, my brothers? A boiling pot facing in what direction? Away from what direction? Away from the north. You can tell that because of the way it is. (laughs) Some of you know what I'm saying there. (laughs) A boiling pot facing away from the north. Okay, you've seen well. (laughs) What does it mean? Yeah. Yeah, disaster from the north, judgment coming. Yes, indeed. God is going to be pouring out his wrath. He's going to be pouring out angry, wicked, violent nations on his people. Okay. That was part of what we saw in chapter 1. More about that in just a moment. There's something that's very plain as we go through, the, go through Jeremiah in the reading of this. A theme that really makes itself very plainly known. It's a, maybe a two-part of one, of one saying one thing. God is saying through Jeremiah that my people have not listened to me. And because, as a result of this, they don't even know me. It, that's, that's the obvious and plain outcome. But God is saying as well, they will know me. And that will take a couple different shapes. One of those shapes is that he will make, well, he's going to make a couple different sides of his character known to him, known to them. And we began to say that we'd like to show a, a 
correlation between what God revealed about his character. In Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so that's the first part of that. Yet, who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And so the second part of that is that he's just, and he always, always does what's right. And so those two things will go hand in hand, and God will make both of those things known to, especially to his people, but also to the other nations as well. And as a subsidiary, tertiary point to that, God is also going to be seen to be the keeper of covenants. But especially those first two parts, you might say the essential character of God, he's going to make that known. They have not listened to me, but they will know me. If we summarize very quickly what we saw in Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah was sent. He was appointed to be over the nations, and he had a very specific message. God, first of all, told him, though, you shall go, you shall speak all the words that I'm going to give you to speak, and you shall not fear. Fear might be a natural response to the people hearing an unpopular message, and this will get on their nerves, this will grate on them, and after a certain amount of time, they won't tolerate it anymore. And so that will mean some adversity for Jeremiah, but God tells him, do not fear. He's appointed over the nations, and maybe this is one kind of summary, maybe not the best summary of the message of Jeremiah, but one kind of summary. And God says, I've appointed you, verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, I've appointed you over the, uh, this day over the nations, over the kingdoms, and the God who rules in the realms of mankind has the authority to do this, and he appointed Jeremiah to do these things, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow. Those all fall along the same line of things, right? And yet, on the other hand, to build and to plant. So we'll certainly find that in his message. And it's pointing to, these, these, these statements are pointing to God's purpose among the nations, there needed to be some things overthrown, some things broken down so that they could be rebuilt. And that also points to what we had just said about God's character. And I believe that maybe is uh, what we need to say as a review of chapter one. We're going to really push. We did begin in chapter two last time to say a couple different things. Um, and we began to visit several passages throughout the text because we're seeing a foundation laid for several uh, symbols that he will continue to reach to. <laughs> it's, it'll be f familiar buckets because the, the fact of the matter is the, the message didn't need to change a whole lot. It was just Jeremiah would need to look for people that would listen to the message, yes? Um, and what we found in, in our beginning of our, our visit to chapter 2 was that the people were likened to a wayward wife. Uh, this one who goes away and is unfaithful to her husband and is kind of flippant about it, and it gets to, into some really unsavory language, which is, is difficult to read. 
And again, Jeremiah will reach back to this imagery again and again to, 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 get, to, to paint a picture and to get their attention. He also began to say that these people already, he, he knew what was in their hearts. And he had begun already to try to reach to them, but he's finding they couldn't be reached. And God is, um, he's good, he's fair, and he has a lot of, I don't mean to say this in a casual way, but a lot of tools in his toolbox to try to reach people. How can he bring them back? What could he possibly try? Well, you can try to influence and, and draw someone back with love, kindness, goodness. He tried this. It didn't seem to have, uh, well, it didn't have the, the intended effect. Um, if that doesn't work, you can supply some warnings. Let them know that I'm angry with you and that you should have a healthy fear of me, especially when I'm angry with you and you, you're, you and we're at odds here. And that didn't even seem to start to seek in. And then, um, you know, he, can, he begins to try some discipline, and that takes various forms. Eventually, he's just going to have to, um, well, there's no remedy. There's no help for their situation, and all that's left is, is punishment. Is that fair enough? And if we wanted a, a bit of a theme for a lot of what we see in chapter 2, it might be this, this third thing that we haven't um, visited yet. It's the idea that they walked after emptiness. And what's that a reference to? Absolutely. A lot of things to occupy their, their lives, none of which would profit. Certainly not the idolatry that they were uh, so heavily involved in. They walked after emptiness and became empty. That's what we see when we come to chapter 2, verse 5. Many statements of Scripture point out, point, have pointed out the outright foolishness of serving idols. Uh, some image that you've carved out of a piece of stone or chiseled out of, or carved out of a piece of wood or chiseled out of a piece of stone, um, or on the other hand, carved into your heart. But there's foolishness and that's very obvious. What Jeremiah 2 emphasizes here is the emptiness of this behavior. Chapter 2, verse 5, thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? You may be reminded of uh, Psalm 115 and verse 8, maybe not by that, those numbers, but by the statement, those who make, those who make them will become like them. All those who trust in them. And so that's conveying the, the same idea. They walked after emptiness, verse 5. Now, let's, let's skim through chapter 2, if you will, and see some, some parallel statements in terms of the emptiness that they uh, pursued. In verse 8, it was after things that didn't profit. The priest does not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. 
The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. So it's emptiness, right? Saying something very similar, yes? And then in verse 11, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. They walked after emptiness. And then you have to look through a bit of a, um, a symbol here. In, in, in verse 13, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves, they're going through some work here, hewn for themselves cisterns. That's not as good as a, a well of fresh water, but okay, it'd be something if it's not a broken <laughs> cistern that cannot hold water, it says. And so do you see there's an emptiness and things that do not profit. And, and these are, this is what they've gone after. It's absolutely senseless. And God will mock them for this as he shows also in verses 27 and 28 that the things they're pursue, that they pursue, the idols, are powerless. And so not only will he describe them as being powerless, he's going to mock them for following these things. And this is a very common type of language in the prophets. As the thief is shamed when he is discovered, so the house of Israel is shamed. Why is this? Verse 27, who say to a tree, you are my father. I think you have to get fairly deceived to begin to say things like, you gave me birth to a stone. For they've turned their back on me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Now, they're speaking to God now, because what, what did the idols do to help them? They couldn't help them. Listen to verse 28. But where are your gods, which you have made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you, in the time of your trouble. And... He says, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. You've multiplied gods. You, don't have, you can't select from any one of those gods you've multiplied and find some help in your time of trouble? No. And, and so, and so the, God is outright mocking them for this kind of behavior. It's just absolutely senseless. Let's notice some of the uh, key statements and key um, passages in chapter 2. In verse 8, the ones who should have known God best didn't. Priests, Levites, rulers, prophets, they didn't seek, they didn't know, they didn't fear, and they didn't revere God. And that's not a good situation for any people. In verse 8, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? They did not seek him. The rulers who handle the law did not know me. And so if you don't listen, the result is you don't know. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal. And as we saw before, they walked after things which do not profit. What was God's intention for the purpose of a priest with respect to um, knowing the things of the Lord, what would you say? Mm 
-hmm. Once a year, mm -hmm. as a pure, as a as a as a, uh, a person in between the people mm -hmm. and God, he he was also the person that oversees sacrifices for mm -hmm. sins and other things of that nature. Mm -hmm. But what makes this really bad is this God that they're that they're um, trading God for. Even barbarians and heathens would not worship that God because they ate kids. And so that's why God is so furious with them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because it's not even a sin that a sinner would do. Right. And so, yeah, we'll see that even more so in, in verse 11. But yeah, certainly served as the function of atoning for the sins of the people. There's something else in that, and this is revealed by Malachi, especially uh, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. For the lips of a priest should preserve what? Someone's nodding. Should preserve knowledge. And men should seek instruction from his mouth. Are they going to have instruction about God? <laughs> If the priests and all the, the, the ones who handle the law, so I've called them lawyers, as the New Testament does, the Levites, they don't even know the Lord. Can they serve that function and can they keep people in the right way? And so you can see how people are getting really, are really going off the rails. And so verse 9, God's message to them is that I will contend with you. This is specifically and especially the leaders. I will contend with you, declares the Lord, with your sons' sons, I will contend. It's bad that God finds idols and evil in the hearts of the people, but it's, it's much worse that leaders lead them to stumble into sin. And Jesus would have words to say about woe to people like that who will do that, who cause others to stumble. And so you can see why um, God will confront them, be furious with them, as was said, absolutely. In verse 11, has there ever been a nation like this? Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Has that ever happened? I don't know of a nation that's ever done that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, and so in, in, in spite of all good sense and everything that they had seen and should have known, um, they're turning after things that then all the gods that were thrown out of the land before them. Uh, no, no sense in it whatsoever. We'll see Judah setting at least two or three different sort of precedents, and none of them are positive. Um, more about that in a minute. We saw in verse 13 that the people had committed two evils. You might even call, you might call this insult to injury. You turn away from life-giving, pure water, and you turn toward, and what you choose for yourself instead is thirst, emptiness, maybe um, putrid, stale water. Um, it, it doesn't take a week and a half for the kiddie pool in the in the summer heat, like a week and a half, and I go outside and it's it's absolutely disgusting. And so 
I think the people have chosen something very similar to that. They've chosen starvation instead of the water of life. Let's see if we can catch up here in what we're saying. Now, I know it doesn't seem like it, but we've covered many of the intervening verses. I'm I'm turning now to verse 32. Because in maybe one of the most classic statements here in the beginning part of Jeremiah, I suppose... Another thing that's almost too preposterous to entertain. Get the picture here. What is it in verse 32? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me. It's like these things, again, have never been heard of. It recalls what was said to the church at Ephesus. You've forgotten something. You've left something. And it's things that nobody in a right mind can forget or can leave. And then coming to the end of these statements, they have become utterly deceived. They're blind to their real condition. And, I mean, you you know that that's the case. How can you get to the point where you say the kinds of things you're saying... You're doing the kinds of things you're doing without just being completely blind to your own situation. But they're also blind to their standing before God. In verse 35, yet you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. Behold, I will enter into judgment with you because you say, I have not sinned. And so it's deeply troubling to consider Um, that people can go so far. Is there anything else we need to say about chapter 2 before we go on? Yes. Let's hear from Josh and then... In reading chapter 2, this is the way it hits me. And just so you know, this is the first time I've ever sat through a class on Jeremiah. So if my understanding is... Wrong, please be quick to correct me. I look at this, and it kind of kind of like how light passes through a prism and reveals the colors. What I'm hearing is God speaking to a nation, a sovereign nation. He's speaking to his people, and he's speaking to individuals. And so I've heard people who claim to be Christians, some who are, some who aren't, um, ask things like, what has the world come to What has this country come to? What have we come to? And what this tells me is that why should I question? Why should I even ask? What's the world come to? Mm -hmm. What has the the quote-unquote Christian world come to when the individuals have allowed it to happen? Mm -hmm. Because it's it's very easy. In in my personal life, I can look back to, I've never worshipped Baal. I don't even know who he is. I just know he's a false god who people worshipped. But I, I have in the past been much more fervent in my support for a political candidate or party and would be so vocal and so passionate about making sure this guy or, or woman gets elected when I wasn't... Cha- I, I, essentially, I feel like, I think, we put people, mm-hmm. money, prestige mm-hmm. over what's most important, which is our purpose. 
So th that's what I think is being said by Jeremiah mm -hmm. here. Yeah. So several things in that, all of which were helpful. The a personal introspection is needed. It's like it, looking outward can only do so much. We need to look to ourselves for the correction that needs to be made. We can't look. Jeremiah 17 will say maybe what you started to touch on there at the end, that anyone who puts his trust in mankind or man or any institution or anything like that, he will be disappointed. He will be crushed. And that, that will, again, be unprofitable. It'll be empty. Um, anyway, there was a lot there. Thank you for all of that. <clears throat> who said these words? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Who said those words? Anybody know? Isaiah did. Isaiah 55, if you care to know. Isaiah, through his message from the Lord. The, I, I just find that, I find that utterly parallel to what we're going to read from chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. That God was looking for people that would return to him. But the question is... These people, we've already said that they're, I'm having a hard time reaching them, and that's being euphemistic about it, really. Will they return? Well, if, they will fors if the wicked man will forsake his way and the unrighteous man will forsake his thoughts, and if they return to the Lord, he is willing to abundantly pardon. Something about the character of God in that. So let's answer this question in chapter 3. Will they return? But before we do that, we will say in chapter 3, verse 1, maybe the third of a triad of things that have never been heard of. We've already said it. Bill pointed this out. Bill picked up on this last week as well, especially from chapter 2. They've become exceptional, but not in a good way. It's a behavior that's so appalling, it's never been heard of. Um, in chapter 3, verse 1, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? And furthermore, he says, you're a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. And so you wonder if there can be any kind of reconciliation there. We'll answer that question in a minute. But... For, for a woman to act like a harlot and go after many lovers and then go home to her husband and act like there's still love there? <laughs> you get the picture? It's, has this ever been heard of? These are things that are so outlandish and so inappropriate. And it goes along with what we'd seen before. A nation changing gods. Even the pagans didn't do that. <laughs> Their gods weren't worth very much. But at least they were loyal. <laughs> you could say that much. A bride forgetting her wedding garment or her attire. And it reminds me of something that was said to the Corinthians, that there is behavior among them. There sometimes exists behavior among God's people that is not even named among the Gentiles. 
And this is a, obviously a deep, deep problem. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, some translations will say it's not even named. Some might say it, it doesn't exist. And some might say it's not tolerated even among Gentiles. And yet it's what God's finding among his people. They're building a repertoire of things that have never been heard of. And they're establishing these precedents. Well, we asked if there can be any reconciliation, and we've said that their character is exceptional. Well, God's character is exceptional as well. Um, and in fact, he will welcome them back. How can there be an open invitation? Let's visit chapter 3 and through a number of verses that will show that God's actually looking for them. Even after all of that, they, we have history. Yeah, I have history with that person. We can't possibly reconcile. God's not that way. His ways are, well, are better than that. In verses 7 and verse 10, he's looking for them to return. Listen to verse 7. And I thought after she's done all these things, she will return to me, but she did not return. This is actually specifically of Israel. But it turns out in verse 10, Judah is much the same way. Yet in spite of this, all her, her, citri, her <laughs> treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. More about that in a minute. So God is happy to reconcile. But that will come with the requirement, well, with some conditions, right? In verses 12 through 14, uh, right there in the middle of that, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I'm calling you back. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge, okay, some conditions. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and you've scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree, so some imagery there, and you have not obeyed my voice. Acknowledge that... You have transgressed, you're sinful, and that you have not obeyed my voice. And return to me. He says, go ahead, return. You've been faithless, but I want you to return. That's really quite remarkable. In verse 22, return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. And some, somebody will say, behold, we come to thee. And then the same thought will carry into chapter 4. Let's defer that for just um, a few minutes. In, in chapter 3, verse 2, idolatry is harlotry. And some things are... Yeah, are really almost, they're too shameful to mention, but, and yet they're mentioned. So we have to say they're almost too shameful and too gross to mention. And so if God is saying these things and he's using this shocking language and, and disgusting imagery, what's he trying to accomplish? They need to see how wicked they are. They need to see their true state. And so I think, that's, I think that's why we're seeing some of these things. It's not pretty, and they need to know. They need to know. Um, so chapter 3, verse 2. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. 
Where have you not been violated? By the roads you have sat for them like an Arab in the desert, and you've polluted your land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. That's all I'm going to say about that. What is this, by the way, about the bare heights? What is that a reference to? We'll, come, we'll, we'll see this time and time again, so let's, let's be clear about what we're reading. Yeah, I, I think so. I think uh, especially the high places. Um, so again, the connection with idol worship. And we'll, we'll see later in chapter 3. They're going to be crying out from their high places, but to God. And the, the, they're pictured as being at their high places, and it's doing them no good. Okay, so more about that in a minute. Um, but we're seeing this shameful, shameful uh, behavior. Um, but verse 3, they couldn't see it. And so because of that, they're not ashamed of what they're doing. And they have a hard forehead, so a stubborn disposition toward everything that's, that God's saying to them in verse 3. Um, we get a, um, a bit of a time stamp in chapter 3, verse 6. We, we've said that Jeremiah's time and his teaching was right here. So if this represents all of the history of the nation of Judah as a divided kingdom, we're really just right here in this bracket, this last, last little bit. And in chapter 3, verse 6, again, uh, a bit of a timestamp. This is in the 13th year of uh, Josiah, king of Judah. And that's very interesting for uh, at least um, one reason. But it's, it's very interesting that this appalling picture is coming about at this time because what little, you, what little anybody would need to know about Josiah is that he was a good king who set about trying to make reforms and remove the idolatry. And so to hear these words at the time that Josiah is, um, well, active and, and making reforms is, is it, that, well, that's interesting. Second Chronicles 34 um, gives a, a bit of a summary of how this went. In the eighth year of Josiah's reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Very commendable. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. And yet, these still exist and the people still look toward these. And of the car he's purging also of the carved images and the molten images. Obviously... His work is far from complete, and this is, no, this is no slight to Josiah's work. How much can one man do if the whole tidal flood of people and the whole momentum of that, of that is just absolutely firmly in toward, toward, toward idolatry? And so, uh, what is the word of the Lord at this time? Well, it's this. In verse 6, the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah, the, the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. Now, I thought after all these things, she will return to me. She has to see. She has to come to her senses. No, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw all of this go uh, transpire. 
And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away, given her a writ of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went away and was a harlot also. I've said before, my younger siblings learn from me <laughs> on a number of things, and especially my next youngest sister. <laughs> she didn't go down those roads because she saw it didn't end well. <laughs> and this, this, is the, this is the dynamic that should have played out. They saw it, but they didn't fear. They didn't, well, uh, several other things. They, they, they didn't learn. And it came about, well, let's come, yeah, so verse 9, and it came about because of the lightness of her harlotry that she polluted the land, committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. So there's some shade or shadow of turning back. More about that in a minute. But certainly not turning with a whole heart. And... And so, it just, it, it's unfathomable, but Judah didn't learn and Judah didn't return. I think that's the summary of what we saw right there. She saw, okay, so Israel learned nothing from the emptiness of idolatry. Israel didn't turn back after all that, and Judah saw the aftermath. Uh, the divorce, as it's pictured there, they're getting dragged off into captivity. And uh, in spite of all of this, in those very words, Judah didn't learn and Judah didn't return. Can anyone suggest a lesson in this? Is there anything in this as a lesson for us? Okay, this is a softball. And if so, are there any, and, but this is, this is extra credit or whatever you want to say about it. Are there any passages of scripture that speak directly <laughs> to this idea? If so, say so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just of no, no return. It talks mm -hmm. about the callous heart, the sealed heart, talks about the Pharisees that acted like they were religious, but they were actually not religious. Mm -hmm. It talks about uh, different sins like gossiping and everything else that will lead you to hell if you don't stop it. So you can't follow it. Right. And so um, certainly there's that. There is the idea that we are looking at people who failed miserably, had a appalling and horrendous outcome. And we have all of this easily, let's just say nicely and neatly recorded for us. Is there any sobriety? <laughs> Do we need to be sober about reading these things and realizing that if we fall into the same mistakes they made, we're doing what Judah did. And it's, the outcome will be, for us will be the same as the outcome for them. If we don't gain the lessons, I think Romans will probably speak to that. Romans 15, I think uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that we need to be careful not to fall by following the same example of disobedience. And we need to take a great deal of care and caution uh, since those things have been written for us to learn and pay attention. Yes. I've heard it said that it was easier to get Egypt out of, uh, get Israel out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of Israel. Mm -hmm. And here in, in this time of Jeremiah, Josiah could tear down all those 
idols, but didn't mean their hearts were changed. And today, it's easier to get us out of the world than it is to get the worldly influences out of us. Undoubtedly so. Undoubtedly so. We said that uh, God was looking for a return. And in verses 12 and 13, there's mercy with the God of mercy. Return, O faithless Israel, and I will look upon you, I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious. I will not be angry forever. This recalls Psalm 103, which, by the way, um, gives us a very clear picture of the same character of God snapshot that we've gotten from Exodus chapter 34. Uh, Psalm 103, uh, so how about verse 9? He will not strive with us always, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so... Uh, uh, so great is his loving kindness toward those who love him. As far as the east is from the west, so great, or so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, he says, return, sons, faithless sons. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but uh, dust. This begins to show um, what... Uh, we'll see several times, which is that God is looking for and desires to have a relationship with them as a father and a son. We've begun to say that already. Um, and you'll see that in, we, yeah, here we are, in verses, uh, verse 14. Now, I'll be in the right place here now. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord. Um, let's, let's do verse 19. Then I said, I would set you among my sons. See, do you see the longing of God to have them turn to him like a father and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of a nation? Who gets an inheritance? Sons get an inheritance. And I said to you, you shall call me my father, a very close relationship, and not turn away from following me. Same in verse 22, return faithless sons, turn to me as a father. One thing that should not be missed in all of this, and we're going to see from his earliest words, it's amazing to me how the prophets can thread ideas together so closely that seem so, well, polarized. You know, there's a, a message of judgment and destruction, and at the same time, he points to his future promises and all the blessings and all the goodness that he wants to give them. And so that's what we see in verses 14 through 18. And just quickly in this, we began to see things that relate to the Messiah and future promises woven into the language of this. There's statements about Zion and also the attraction to the name. And so that's very much parallel to Isaiah chapter 2. Can you tell I'm going faster at the moment? There, uh, there's a promise of shepherds that will feed them on knowledge. And when that happens, they'll be God's covenant people from the very important chapter 31 who will know God. All of them will know God in all of his new covenant people. There's removal of sins that can only take place because of the work of Jesus. And there's a restoration of Israel and Judah together, which again points ahead to some things. At the end of chapter 3, I am determined to get at least this done, and then we'll be up to where we were, uh, should have been last week. Um, There is an unlikely, but 
hopeful and uh, optimistic outlook. Um, yeah, an optimistic outlook. Where in verse 22, God will say, return to me and I will heal your faithlessness. Now listen very carefully and see if you can figure out what's going on in here. There's a response. Behold, we come to you, for thou art the Lord our God. Surely the hills are deception. We've come to our senses. Surely uh, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. And we've been consumed by all of these other things from our youth. That's maybe in, in its humiliation. And we have sinned, verse 25, since our youth to this day. And we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. We, behold, we come to thee. Okay, um, there's a talk of turning back to God. Who is speaking and who is saying, behold, we turn to you? Anyone want to uh, make a suggestion or you just know for sure? <laughs> because I, as, as far as I can tell, there are three possibilities and I don't know what it is. Who is looking to turn? Mm-hmm. So some people have perhaps come to their senses. Yeah. I think it's possible that these are the words of God. And what's going on here is that God is supplying a kind of response that he's looking for and really almost kind of coaching them. He's like, I want you to turn to me. And here's what that would look like. You would say, behold, I come to you. I think that's a possibility. And it would be kind of like what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and it would be well with them. And let me coach them on what that heart and what that response to me would look like. So I think it's possible that God, because it sounds fairly unlikely that the people, especially the people just by and large, turn to God. I think it's also possible that Jeremiah is the one saying, yes, Lord, we turn to you. We're coming back to you. And he's almost speaking on behalf of the people and almost interceding on behalf of the people. Kind of like what you found, what we find in Ezra in that beautiful prayer. Ezra's innocent in the matter. And yet he says, we have sinned, we and our father's house. He includes himself much like maybe Jeremiah might be doing. And... Um, Confessing to the Lord, saying, yes, we're turning back. And, and maybe seeking to model that for the people. I think that's possible too. And then certainly, some, someone in Judah, some certainly, at most, a remnant, right? Coming to their senses. Do you remember anybody who was wasteful? Prodigal is the word. Wayward, who finally came to his senses, I think you do, and maybe they are, they're doing this and coming to the Lord. And I, I think there's a hint uh, about that in the text to some, in, in some measure. In verse 1, he says, yet you're turning to me. Verse uh, 10 will reveal that it's not a, a perfect turning because it's not with the whole heart. Um, but maybe in some way. There are supplications in verse 21. That they're real, the, the idolatry is not serving them well. And maybe they are beginning to turn to the Lord. And back in chapter 2, verse 27, for sure, when they're in trouble, they're going to say, save us. What about your gods? No, you, you save us. You're our God. Well, maybe, maybe one of those things. Thank you for considering these things and for your input tonight.